Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, so we've never yep. met one another before. This is the first conversation that we've ever had in real time. And I do appreciate that too. It'll be interesting for me at the end of this conversation because many times people hear the program or see whatever the image is and they have their own ideas about who I am and what I'm all about. Just like I do when I watch programs and content, you know, I make up in my mind. I think about some of my favorite artists. I love Diana Ross. And when I was younger, <laughs> probably about 15, probably most guys at that time had their favorite athlete on their wall in their bedroom i had on my wall diana ross the whole wall was just packed with images of diana ross i was 15 years old and i'm 54 now how old are you i am 36 okay and how old is your father my dad has always been kind of secretive about his age but i think my dad is in his 60s late 50s early 60s late 50s or early 60s okay so i'm probably old enough to be your father anyway when I was 15, I had these Diana Ross pictures on my wall. And now that I'm 54, sometimes I sit here in my house and I think, I don't really know anything about Diana Ross other than her music, right? I've never met her. I've never spent time with her. All I know is what I read. And I know the impact that her music has had on me and still has on me. I know what I see in interviews of her. I know what I believe her to be and who I believe her to be, but honestly, I've never met her, so I don't really know her. So all these years, what she has been is her work, her musical work, and my ideas of who she is, right? So if I were gonna write about her, I can write about how her music makes me feel, and I can write about what I've heard about her, but I can't write about her from the perspective of really knowing her, because I don't know her. I just know what her work that she's put out into the world, and all those songs, and all those albums, and all those movies, and everything she's done. I know how that has affected me, and how I feel about it, and I know what I have projected in my mind because of all that work, and the images, and the interviews. What I have projected in my mind of who she is and what she's all about and as someone who has worked in the entertainment business for a long time this is my 33rd year in the entertainment business congrats thank you and having met some of the people that i once fantasized about famous people and realized that when i got to know them and when i worked with them and hung out with them a couple of them i really didn't even like just as a person (laughs) as a person was their music good absolutely Am I still moved by their music? Yes. But as a person hanging out with them, I didn't even really like them. And I almost wish that I had never met them and just lived with my fantasy of who they were and not the reality of who they are. You feel what I'm saying? Because the reality of who they are was very different and is very different from my fantasy of what I thought they were and who I thought they were based upon the music and the work that they've put out into the world. So I'm saying all that to say that at the end of this conversation, I'll be curious to see if the real time experience of talking to me and getting to know me, 
me getting to know you, but this is my first time really learning anything about you. But as someone who has listened to the show, listened to the podcast, listened to me talk, you know a lot more about me than I know about you. Do you feel that way as we embark upon this conversation? Yes, that's yeah. true. I know a few things that we're going to talk about. I know that you own your own dance company. I know the different shows that you put out and what the themes are. You've had hours and hours of listening to those shows and listening to me talk about my life and all of the details and the milestones and the jobs and the drugs and, the, you know, everything. You've heard all of that. So, you know, a lot more yeah. about me. Yeah. Than I actually know about you. So I'm 54, you're 36. That's what, 46? So I have 18 years on you. So when I was 18 years old, you were being born. I was born in 1966, and you're born in what year? 84. 1984, which is the year I graduated from high school. Happy being alive Love knows Positive vibes with a man who don't mind taking a chance. It's Robert Wesley Branch. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Hey, hey, yay. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Hey, hey. It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show. And that you first heard about me through the program. You had a guest on and you were really talking about your life and the drugs. And it was a real deep one. I think at that time in my life, I was going through, you know, it's like law of attraction. And at that time, I was going through another chapter of healing, mm -hmm. dealing with my parents and stuff. So that particular segment jumped out to me. And then usually, I'm a person where I do not approach people often. I reached out to you. And I always like people that are progressive. Mm -hmm. And do you remember what you were thinking when you reached out? Like, what is it that you... You just wanted to establish a connection based upon what you had heard me talking about? I think particularly at that time, I was actually in tears. Mm -hmm. And it was because when we were talking about the drugs piece, it was hitting home with my mom. I grew up on two different sides of the track and still managed to bounce and even well in life. Mm -hmm. So it was to reach out for the connection, but it was just also to know who is this person that has came through so many storms and was able to balance his life out able to weather the storm because so many people do not i feel that yeah i don't know exactly what show you're talking about but i think it was probably when i was talking to author gd grace we started february 6th 2010 that was the first show and in april of that year so just a couple of months later i invited a man on i think this was show number 10 named gd grace and he's an author out in california and the show was called Back From Addiction. And that was the first time that I really started talking about my life like that. Because when we first started in February, I was covering news topics and what was going on with the Senate and the House and the president and all that. Because that's my background, journalism. But when I invited him on mm -hmm. that day and we were talking about drugs and he had a drug addiction at that time. He was clean at that time. But then shortly after that show, he relapsed. He was mm. talking about his drug addiction and I was talking about mine. And then something just happened. I just went for it. And it was on that show that day that I realized that this platform was a ministry 
for me. And not even a ministry at that time. It was therapy, straight up. Yeah. The first time I felt it, like, okay, I'm telling this. I'm usually a very, and still am a very private person. But to be in this space mm-hmm. with these co-hosts and this author, I feel like if I'm going to do this, because this was just two months into starting this podcast 10 years ago. And I said to myself, while I was talking to him, if I'm going to do this, if this is going to be for real and legit, I got to be fully present with this and authentic or it's not going to work. And so when he started talking about his drug addiction, I didn't want to sit there and act like I didn't know what he was talking about because I did. And to be really honest with you, at that time, I was still using drugs at that time, 10 years ago. Might have even been high that day. Certainly probably had smoked a joint. I was smoking a joint before the show regularly for the first year. So I don't know if that's the show that you're talking about, but I certainly remember that moment in the evolution of this podcast where I said, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do it authentically. Later that year in August, we did a show called, this is 2010, and there was a show called, I think it was called Good Love, Giving Good Love or something like that. And Maisha, my co-host, brought on a couple, a married couple, and she was interviewing them. The guy was talking, and he kept saying, you know, I'm sure you can relate to that, Robert. And I was going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I couldn't. I really couldn't relate to it. I'm not, I'm not married. I've never been married. Relationships are not my thing. I don't really talk a lot about intimate relationships because I don't really know a lot about that. That has not been the subject area where I have gained expertise nor have a lot of experience. So I don't really talk about that. But he was going there because he was on to talk about his marriage. And I remember getting off that show and sitting here in my studio and thinking, no, we're not doing that. You're not going to get up on here, Robert, and be fake with yourself and with your co-hosts and with the people. I ain't doing that. I'll just shut it down before I'm inauthentic with myself. Because what's that about? Like, why get up and be fake? Every I, I didn't understand why I would want to do that. And it didn't feel right. I didn't feel good about that program after it was on. So I guess I'm sharing all that to say that my journey has been in this space is to be as truthful and as honest and as authentic as I can be with my story. I think that's good because as you're talking, I'm a very private person about a lot of my life. Like you said, people have their perceptions and their assumptions. And I think for years, or I know for years, dance was always my therapy. And so dance is a very nonverbal, but it's also a very verbal in a way because the body has to be able to tell all these stories. Listening to you, I feel like the law of attraction was, you know, I was in a very nonverbal state of my time in that period where I was going through a lot of hurt. I was in a relationship. It was some things that were really going on, past relationships. And so the best way I knew how to communicate at one time was through my dancing. Mm -hmm. But I also write heavily. And I start adding a lot of my writing, my spoken word, into my dancing and mingle the two. And boom, waha, you have this masterpiece. And I've reached a point in my life now at 36 where it's like I have to get that story out because it's cool that I can do it from the dance world and I can create all these pieces. Every artist to me always has a hidden message in their song, in their lyrics, whatever, in their artwork, however they do it. But the most powerful thing sometimes is the voice because once I started to share even things as a black director and what we go through and what I've sacrificed and how I have gotten jaded in life at one point because I went through a lot to sacrifice to uh, have somewhere for the kids to come. When I didn't verbalize it, it was causing me more pain. So it's kind of like an addiction. You sit in that pain and you sit in it. But then when I started to verbalize it and actually tell people, it was like a relief would come over me. It was like this healing. So 
I'm flashing back when I first sent you a message to now. It kind of makes sense listening to you talk. Like, I have to be very authentic in, like, the story. Because I can tell the story great in dance, but that's a different form versus I'm actually able to sit now and comfortably tell the story. Which, at one point in my life, it was so uncomfortable to talk about because you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, you, you wonder how people are going to look at you, and I'm not in that space anymore. That's how my school came around with the Beauty for Ashes. My life was that example of the ashes turning into the beauty. So now, each day, each year, each moment, I'm starting to understand and get more clarity on myself and who I am and kind of how I move the way that I move, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. Let's just go right there because one of the first things that you shared with me in our transcript and in our conversation on Facebook was that you do own your own dance school in Hampton, Virginia. And it is called Beauty for Ashes Contemporary School of Dance. This was five years ago when you told me this, February 18th, 2015. That's five years ago. So at that time, you were, what, 31, 30 years old? How did such a young man come to own his own dance studio in Hampton, Virginia. When I was young, I would say about, because I grew up in Germany. I didn't come to America until I was about six or seven. Mm -hmm. And people used to always ask me, in the long short of everything, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, oh, I want to be a dancer, go to college, travel the world, and own my own dance company. And so fast forward at 36, that's what I'm doing. Dance started out very therapeutic because my great-grandmother raised me. I mean, she had a fifth-grade education. She wasn't as loving, but you knew she loved you. She was very old school. My mom was heavily on drugs at that time, and my dad was just nowhere in the picture. He was in and out because he was still mad with my mom high school stuff, even though they were grown people. And so the kids usually suffer at hand at that. As I went through life and traveled and danced and was training, I would always have this thorn in my side, like, yeah, I'm about to quit dance. Oh, I just can't do it. I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And every time I tried to quit, I came right back around because when someone asked me at nine, like, what were you doing? I'm going to own a dance company. I never thought it would come into fruition it did. Years ago when I was in college, I was already forming my company, but it was called Heart and Soul at that time. Because at that time, I was dealing with a heart issue. Not so much physically, but the broken heart from my parents and a lot of the issues I was carrying around. So I carried the company Heart and Soul because I've always danced for my soul. People always giving me these compliments. Like, oh, you're dancing with angels. So one day I was sitting at my parents' house, my mom's house, and she had remarried. And... Her husband said, I feel like you're going to rename this company one day. And I was putting everything together because I was working in city government and I had done every single position you can think of. So Beauty for Ashes really came about because of my life. And so now, even with the school, my dream came my reality. Yes, this will tell you or show you the reference point that I'm going to drop right now will show you how many summertimes more that I've seen than you've seen because when I think of dance and dance school and dance school teacher my mind goes back to Debbie Allen and the TV show <laughs> Fame from I guess that might have been the 80s or might have even been the 70s I don't even remember but that's mm -hmm. what I think of are you familiar with that television show oh yes I used to watch Fame I love Fame okay mm -hmm. right on okay so alright so we good we good yeah so that's what I think yeah. of <laughs> and what did you and what do you or how did that particular first of all how old were you when you were watching fame on television so similar to what you said how you had donna ross on your wall i was always into music and dance i used to go out in the neighborhood real quick and like make up all these routines and then all the kids from the neighborhood would come and i would teach them the neighborhood i like had my first real 
dance group at a community center, and the kids were from like 19 to 17. I was teaching them in a community center. But I was watching Fame. It had to be like, oh gosh, like 9, 10. And then I would watch a lot of the PBS shows, and they would have the ballet, the ballerinas and the ballerinas up there, and Alvin Ailey and Dance Theater Harlem. All these people were on these shows, and it kind of marinated in my life, because my mom would say whenever I would hear music as a kid in the crib, that would kind of be the only thing that would kind of calm me down, and I would have my own, do my own dancing and stuff when I was in um, Germany. The journey and the path made sense. Mm-hmm. So Leroy was one of my favorite characters on Fame, but then I loved the whole series of fame like oh my gosh you're living in this world and you're doing what you love and you dance so yeah you know i was in the clouds at that time so you're nine years old watching fame on television you came to america from germany you said at age six mm-hmm. so when you're nine where are you living what state i was in virginia at that time virginia okay so you're with n- my great-grandmother with your great-grandmother wow beautiful yes it was my great-grandmother and it was just the two of us and we i used to just watch tv she was she really was supportive as much as she could and i would just sit for hours and i would watch it you know i would watch all those episodes of fame and debbie island with the stick and <laughs> right twirling and doing a turn <laughs> right and the high kick and uh-huh. you want fame you know her favorite phrase you learn something once, and it's yours for life. But first, you have to become a dancer. Now, you may be hot stuff up in Harlem, or you may have the best tutu collection in the country. Doesn't matter. I don't have time for prima donnas. You want to become a dancer? You're going to have to work. Work your little tights off. I ain't wearing no tights. You've got big dreams. You want fame. Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying, in sweat. I want to see sweat. And the better you are, the more sweat I'm going to demand. So if you never had to fight for anything in your life, put your gloves on and get ready for round one. And Mama and Daddy's little darlings had better come out swinging. And I would actually be doing the, the routines, you know, at that time of what I could do in the living room, and that inspired me to take a jazz class with a lady named Miss Waters. I would never forget who she was. And no, I had to be a little bit older because I was like in fourth or fifth grade probably at that time. But I took a class with her in jazz, and I just was like, yeah, because at that time I was already doing reggae, salsa, hip-hop. I was already doing that, but I felt like I needed something more. And then when I finally made the switch in my mind, I was super young when I was like, yep, I'm going to do classical and I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to do jazz, modern, and that's when my switch really came about. Yeah, because watching Debbie Allen in fame, and I certainly remember Leroy too, watching that program, and I was not a dancer. And at that age in my life, I don't even know if I knew exactly what road I wanted to pursue. But watching her... And how she dealt with those students. It's almost like a rite of passage in your life to have someone, a teacher, a professor, affirm you and encourage you in the thing that you want to do. Okay? That's a rite of passage. Yes. And that's the thing I loved about her and Leroy. You took this kid that came deep from the projects, running in the streets, doing whatever he was doing. He was like a loose cannon, basically. But he had this wonderful talent. I call it a gift. Mm -hmm. The talent and the gift look the same, but it's totally different. The gift, he had a gift, but his environment 
that sociology and the psychology, how it plays in the mind, he couldn't see himself better than what he was. Well, that is a prime example of beauty for ashes, because in exchange for his ashes, she said, you come here and we give you this free scholarship and you're going to dance. And through all his outbursts and his attitudes, and I ain't do it, man, because he had to get acclimated to a system. And sometimes I, as a director, it's like that. You, She was very tough. Debbie was very stern, and she was no joke. And you're going to get on that floor, and you're going to twirl, and your legs are going to reach to the gods <laughs> in the heavens. Right. I don't care how you get there, but you're going to do it. <laughs> right, right. Would you say that Miss Waters was your Debbie Allen, or who was your Debbie Allen in your dance journey? No, my Debbie Allen, which was a little bit weird. See, they inspired me. My Debbie Allen was really my uncle. My dad's brother. My dad's brother is a dancer. And what was weird about it, he didn't even know I was going into dance since I was in college. We never talked about it. He's very stern and a stickler. He was my Debbie Allen. The things he would say can, like, cut you really raw. I'm mm-hmm. talking about, like, cut you down to the white meat, mm-hmm. right? I used to be so sensitive about it. Similar to a Leroy, because you're not acclimated to it. But then, now that I look back and I'm 36, everything he taught me and everything he said me since. And it made me a good business person that I am today. Because sometimes when you come into entertainment, you have just artists that are artists. They have agents. They don't do their contracts. They don't handle any of that. Where I have a duality. As much as I'm attracted to the dancing and the artistry side, I have a huge love for business. So I have a duality. It's an awkward kind of contract. So contracts, I write them myself and I love them. Because I understood through history and through time how we lost a lot of things as a people, not understanding languages, not knowing how to go in and protect ourselves in such a way where the contract has to benefit both parties. It has to be an even exchange. It has to be an even collaboration. It just cannot benefit the other person and then you're making pennies on the dollar. I naturally just went into it and my uncle used to say, you're more of a business person than I am and was. He's more of the, I want to create. I want to create, but I also want to create and generate wealth for legacy. I understand the importance of that on the business side of it. But the creating on the arts, I definitely love that too. Yeah, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking... What I hear you saying in this industry that we both work in called show business, the bright, shiny object, the talent, the creative is the show part. That's the part where you get up on stage and do what you do. And many artists Mm -hmm. focus on that. They get their hair right. They get their makeup right. They get their costume right. They get their voice right. They get their dance right. They get whatever they do right for show. That's half of it. That's the show part of show business. On the business side, somebody else is handling a lot of stuff that the artist, the showman or show person or show woman really ain't dealing with. They, you know, over in the corner meditating on how to be fabulous. (laughs) Whereas this one over here in the other corner is paying the bills, is signing the contracts, is negotiating the writers, all the stuff, the business stuff that you're talking about. And many of us are not adept at the business side of show business. We're attracted to the show part. And so we have sold and given away and pimped out our talent for years and generations. And at the end of our journey, when we're too old and the talent has more years behind it than it had in front of us, we don't really have a lot to show for it. We have a lot of show that we did, but not a lot of business results Mm -hmm. to live on. 
after. And so that's very wise of you at such a young age to be equally businessman as you are showman. That's very wise. I respect that and salute that 100%. Thank you. In my life, I have learned how to decompress. When I come home, it's lots of peace and it's me time. Whatever I want to do, whether that's the lay around. To be honest, Robert, sometimes I come home and I don't even listen to any music. I can ride in my car and not listen to any music. I don't even turn on my TV. And I have TVs in my house. I would just lay and be peaceful for days because in show business. It is the one field that's unforgiving. You can be sick, you can have a death, you can have all these things going on. Lights, camera, action, time is money, and you still have to get out there and do and perform. And you have to be what your contract, what you have said, your integrity is going to be at that time. People don't understand a couple of hiccups, but it's not going to be too many. <laughs> right. um, and that's how I was taught, <laughs> even in the industry. Right. <laughs> it's not going to be too many. David, you're going to get up here and you're going to do these forte turns, and I want them to be exquisite. I don't care if you just had to bury somebody. Get up here and you're going to do these changement jumps, and I need your legs to be pointed all the way down, and I need you to leave the earth like you're a spaceship. Get it now. And five, six, seven, eight. That's exactly how it works in show business. It's similar to what you say. People do not understand really what goes on a lot of times in just your personal life. You're still human. You're not a Marvel character. You're human. So you're going through just like everyone else is going through. We just have to show it differently because we're in show business. Right. Well, let's go back to nine years old, 10, 11, 12, watching Debbie Allen on Fame because what you're talking about now is your life now as a teacher. I want to go back to a period in your life when you weren't the teacher, when you were actually the student. So let's talk about before you actually became a dance school owner and became the teacher. Let's talk about the time in your life when you were the student. And what is it that you wanted to be or become in the dance world when you were a student learning your craft? even though you had some gifts and you mentioned earlier talent and gifts look the same but are totally different so I want to talk about that too but first what is it that you were trying to become in this industry when you're 9, 10, 11 years old watching Fame and Debbie Allen on television? At 9 and 10, 11 for me it was therapeutic. It kept me from fighting. I was very determined that I was not going to be like my mom, like in the streets. It was a lot for me at that time. At that time, even though I said I was going to own a school, travel, and do all that, I didn't even understand how you put it together like Legos. It was more <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to do it. I didn't care about the popularity of it. It was more of, this is therapeutic for me. And that's really what it was for me. But over time, as you start to get acclimated, I had certain challenges in dance. I was very pigeon-toed. I was very knock-kneaded. Because I used to have braces on my feet when I was a kid. But my mom took them off because they hurt so bad. So it left me in this impaired kind of way. Most dancers are turned out. I had all these other things going on. It was totally left field for me. So I used to go in the class. Literally, I was the only chocolate chip sprinkle on the top. I was some case always the only male. I was going through a lot with like sexuality and life. So it was a lot of challenges. It was a lot. And I will be on and off with it. Like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get this. And this is once I started the formal training of it, which your body hurt, your hamstrings hurt. You don't even know what parts are hurting. Right. You don't even get hurt like this <laughs> as a kid playing dodgeball. Right. You know, you're like, I'm just hurting. But it was one of those things as I started to grow as a student, how it's taught to you, ballet is the king, modern is the queen. They're husband and wife. They speak interchangeable languages. And for you to understand them, you must get into them. And to get into them, 
that will teach you how to sustain yourself in your career. So once I started to do that, I turned that more psychology. The more I got into ballet, because everything in ballet is French, and you're listening to this classical music, and you're like, I'm coming from reggae, soca, hip-hop, I'm doing all these other things, and you get in this class where you're the only minority. You ain't got no spice in here. And I had to start looking at it as healing. It really turned into that for me because the story I would say to myself to memorize the steps, that's what helped me a lot of times. It's so interesting. I'm applying my journey to the dance world, which I know nothing about. Back in the day, Mm -hmm. I ran into a couple of brothers. I forget their names, but they were both dancers. And they both went to, because I'm from Washington, D.C. They both went to, Mm -hmm. at that time, the Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. And they were dancers. And I had run into them, and we were hanging out a little bit back in the day. This was maybe in the 80s. Probably you were like two or three years old, maybe 86, 87, 88, 89. And they were dancers. And so Mm -hmm. just listening to them talk to each other and what their lives were like at that time and the kind of discipline that they were under every day, what they ate and what they didn't eat. Mm -hmm. It was a whole different life (laughs) from what I was. Yeah. Yeah, it was a whole different life. And it was exciting to me to watch and to just be around them because they were in a whole other world that I didn't really know anything about. And what I'm appreciating about what you're talking about is because so we have this raw talent, this gift, as you say, that we've been given. And, you know, you know some things you can some poses. I'm sure you showed up at class and you know how to do because of your gift and your talent, and your body. What that class taught you and what formal instruction teaches us is that there is a psychology and a history and a science behind the talent that we've been given. And we didn't know that. We just knew we liked doing whatever we do. You see what I'm saying? I'm a writer. So I knew I liked to write. But once I got into college and took classes and Dr. Hall would say X, Y, and so, and this is what this is and this is what that is. And you're like, oh shit. You know, people have been doing this for thousands of years and there's a whole science to this. And that's what I hear you being introduced to when you say that everything was in French. Yeah, it wasn't reggae, but you learned the classics. And I think that's something that a lot of us take for granted. Get grounded in the classics and then you can riff off of that shit. Yes. But know the classics first. Yes. Some of us try to skip that step. Yes. For me, before you look forward, you have to know where you come from. And the classics teach you that. You can learn from our forefathers and our mothers. It will tell you what to do, what not to do, and where you should go and what to stray away from. If you choose to look at the grid like that, it's almost like an architect when they build out their blueprint. There is a blueprint that is set in every industry, in every part of your Mm -hmm. life. Actually, there's a blueprint. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we choose to go the opposite way because whatever we're dealing with on the inside, hard work beats talent any day talent does not want to work. Because some people show up in talented and have no work ethic, have no grit. Some people have talent and they believe it's all with the talent. And I tell my students, it's reversed. It's 90% mental, which goes into your science, your history. You have to know all these things. And it's 10% talent. Most people put the emphasis on the talent. It's so much deeper because the artistry heals and it moves change. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about how your uncle, your father's brother, was your Debbie Allen, when you're saying these things to your students, do you hear your uncle's voice saying these things to you? Absolutely. Why can't you do these push-ups? You need to be practicing, because I think this is what people do. I don't care what field they're in. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to show up to class, and my teacher's going to give me every single thing I need here. No, that's why it's called homework and studying at home. Study to show that self-approval. Because when you come into class, if you have studied, DNA does not lie. 
your body is like DNA. It's going to tell me everything you're doing. So if I give an assignment, your brain is going to tell me if you did the history on it. Your body is definitely going to show me if you have been doing the push-ups to sit up, whatever my regimen is that I have for them. I already know when they're doing it or not. So I actually can hear my uncle in my head. I literally can. Mm -hmm. If your father is in his late 50s, early 60s, is this uncle, his brother that you're speaking of, is this a younger brother to your father or an older brother to your father? No, he's older. Older. So how old is... Probably late 60s. Late 60s. Late 60s. They're not that far apart, yeah. And what do you know about your uncle's journey in dance? How did that come into his life? I know certain parts. I know where he studied. I know his travels. I know his business, like what he had at one point in time. He really doesn't talk about a lot because I think in that generation, that was a time where you just don't talk about anything. And he always tells me, he's like, you don't mind really talking about things sometimes. And he's always been private, private. And I think it's just because of the era he grew in. But as he gets older and living in New York, we talk about a lot of different things. Because you have two different workings. If you have people that work within the field and people that work without the field, meaning they have a nine to five, but they still do it on the side. Both are respected either way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the gift. That's the gift. And it depends on what your life circumstances are at that time. I work fully in the field and I've been doing it for the last now 11 years or more. He always worked on the outside, but was still in the field and very, very well connected. So now he's at a place where... He's full-fledging, and I used to say this to him, like, the gift runs in our family very heavily in arts and entertainment. I said something to him. I was like, yeah, I told you to do this a few years back, remember? And he's like, yeah, you did, and we'll laugh about it, because now we're able to talk and laugh about it, where it's not so much mentor-mentee. It is still in a way, but now we have just evolved in our relationship. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that talent and gift look the same but are totally different mm -hmm. let's get into that what did you mean by that it's almost like the word there you know t-h-e-r-e t-h-e-i-r t-h-e-y-r-e -E -E -E, with the approximate if you hear it you wouldn't even know there's different variations to that right mm -hmm. what i have found people that i've always seen to have a gift it is very rough the paths can be very rough sometimes and to get them to work and pull them together it's almost like a stallion you got to really pull them in those wild horses because it's like a lot going on in their world it's a lot going on and you have to pull them in to get it because a person has a, a gift you can really i mean you can see that thing you can see it when they come in as a director i can see the kids that really have the gift because when they come in the body opens up like a dictionary it's a lot of things coming out a lot of words a lot of definitions synonyms, and, and i love it when i meet kids that have talent they aspire to be a dancer but they also want to add on to that they want to multiply the gifts and they study profusely to get it Whereas sometimes the people that are gifted, oh, yeah, I'm gifted. I don't really have to do all that. They try to slide just on good grace and, and gifts. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You have to work. Sometimes they become a little more lazier because they feel like I've arrived. Whereas the people with the talent, they're just going to keep multiplying. I'm going to be a dancer. I'm going to write. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do makeup. They kind of know how to multiply it. And they have a hunger that's there. The gift sometimes does not even know what it's a gift. They don't sometimes know who they are. They do not know who they are all the time. And I always say when you deal with musicians, singers, and dancers, your dancers, to me, will be the epitome of we deal with a lot of, all of us deal with depression and stuff, but it hits us differently. They will pay a singer. They will pay a musician. They will not pay a dancer. 
the dancer is like the Titanic. Like, you are going down. Okay, just come up and entertain us. Do some cute little window washing and go sit down. When dancers start to dance, people are going to the bathrooms. <laughs> when the singers and dancers come, it's like the spirit has moved the jump. I mean... You are jumping for joy. How I live it? You are jumping for joy. A dancer come up. People are very like, what is going on? I forgot. Did I leave my pot roast on? And the reason why I know that, I had a bishop come and tell me that. He said, every time I see you dance, I get you. He said, but I don't get anything that my dancers are doing. He's like, I have been guilty. I laugh at them. I go to the bathroom. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to eat after this. And it gave me a different insight. Sometimes in a gift, you get very stubborn and you don't want to learn from anyone else. A person that wants to aspire to be a dancer, that has the talent, and they know they can do it, they're going to study, and they're going to beat you. They're going to win sometimes because the work ethic, that grit, it's different. You don't have to push them as much because they're going to come in and say, David, what do I need to do? Do you want me to do this? And they got the notebook ready. This is the video I was looking at. Is this the right reference for? And you're just like, oh, wow. When you see the gift, for me, the dancer, the body comes in, but I've seen it where they have a lot of insecurities. They second-guess themselves and how I recognize it because I was with that. Mm-hmm. So I, I get it. Yeah, I think you're talking some good stuff because how I hear what you're saying, like a gift, I look at my own gift to write. That's second nature to me. And it's like breathing. Like I don't have to think about it. I don't mm-hmm. have to do a lot of diagramming of sentences or studying it or being disciplined about it. I can just sit in the silence that you talked about earlier, connect with my own mind and spirit and start writing. And the channel is open. It's a natural gift that God has given me. There are more talented writers because they have studied that thing out and they have researched and they have practiced and they're up at five writing for an hour. So there are some singers who can just come into church and they may have even missed rehearsal, but the music starts and you, they know the words. That gift just opens up and they're just there. Now, there are other singers who are talented, but they was up last night practicing it. They ran through it this morning before they got to church. I mean, their discipline, as you said, their work ethic is different. I agree with that because a lot of times there are a lot of models and singers and people that you see out here. I've worked with a lot of them and so have you. And they're at the acting classes mm-hmm. every week. They're at the gym every day. They're doing all of this other stuff to maintain and develop and master their talents. Whereas some of the gifted folks don't go to none of that. They ain't never taken a singing class. They ain't never done none of that. They ain't got to do yoga before they sing. You just tell them what it is and they get up there and fucking blow. So there are some differences. Yeah, there are some differences there. I definitely feel what you're saying. On that note, there are some nuances in the gifts and the talents. I go back to something that I've learned in my journey. It's that balance. The socialization process is such that we live in an and or consciousness. That's how we're programmed. So you're either talented or you're gifted. And when I was coming up, there was a series of classes called TAG, Talented and Gifted. And I like that because that's and. It's not It's not or. It's and. You can be talented mm-hmm. and gifted. So my point is that the balance of those two states of being is important. It's important to add some talent to your gift. And it's important to lean on Absolutely. some gift to your talent. Because even though you've studied as a talented person, sometimes you got to open up in that moment and be a channel. Because there's something bigger than you that can come through that that talent ain't going to get for you. You know, it's good that you got the talent. That's so right. when that thing drops in on you from 
from above, you got some discipline and know how to work it. You know, your muscles are tight because you did the push-ups. You know how to work it. But sometimes you got to open up to that gift. Talented people need to do that. And sometimes the gifted people need to put a little talent into their gift. It just balances it. And a lot of times we're not taught that balance. It takes some seasoning, as you talked about earlier, to get to a place in your own consciousness where you respect balance. And the daily journey is sort of balancing all of these pieces. That's what you talked about earlier when you talked about being a showman and a businessman. It's both and balancing all of those pieces. And some of us just lean on one area and neglect the other or lean on the other area and neglect this one. Let's talk about your spiritual background. What did you grow up as in the church, outside of the church, Baptist, Catholic, Pentecostal, Kojic? What exactly is your spiritual background? Well, it was interesting. I had a lady that used to know my great-grandmother, and she was like, oh, I want to take David to church. They were like good, good girlfriends. And so my grandmother let me go, and they were Baptists. I didn't understand anything. I was always like trying to find my way, literally, Robert. So I have went to Pentecostal. I went to Apostolic. I did a holiness church. Absolutely not. I went to something Catholic, Presbyterian. And from each one of them, I've gleaned something different. I had to really get down to the grit of it. And the grit was sometimes you can be married to a religion and a dogma. I'm not that type of person because it, it comes off very harsh if you do this, you're going to hell. So I used to ask the pastor, well, if I can't party, if I can't hang out, I can't have a little cocktail, well, what can I do? What are you offering me spiritually besides me being saved and making it through the pearly gates? What do I do in an everyday modern life? You have to help me understand this. And he could not answer that. So that's when I really had to step out. Similar to what you said, I had danced for a artist. I'm not going to say who, but I had to open up and I was the only male and I was the only gay male. And at that time, Skinny Jeans was coming out. Mm-hmm. And we were at this event, and it hit the fan. Right after Hurricane Katrina, it hit the fan. The person got up, spoke over the mic. You guys are going to hell, and you bringing this gay ish. He was going in. And I said, wow. It almost reminded me of the racism thing. And I remember how the people were treating us. The ushers were nasty and saying some rude things. And I was like, I can go dance back in the professional world. And get more respect than this. And I had to really step back from that and really realize your spirituality is not if you go to church seven days a week, you're there three times a day. That does not make you any better than the next person. What I like to be is a light and be inspirational. So now I use all of that that I have ever learned and I navigate it in a different type of way. I look at stuff in the Yoruba culture Hinduism, Buddhism, and it's not that I'm married to one of them. There are certain things that I can learn and apply into my everyday life or just certain principles that can stick with me. Because sometimes, again, when you're married to the religion, you get caught and stuck, and then you become unrelatable in the humanitarian side. And it's a lot of prejudgment that happens out there without understanding. But we all want understanding and to be accepted. So my spiritual background is a lot different. I wake up in the morning, I meditate at nighttime. I listen to music that realigns my chakras. I may get a Reiki done. I do all these things because I'm like, my spirituality is what I needed to become for me so I can be better on my journey and have a better understanding versus being in a box in a cage. People associate your sexuality with what your gift is. Sexuality has nothing to do with me being a dancer. I just happen to be flexible. I happen to can leap in other ways that men can't. That's my gift. 
some people are welders and brick masons. That's your gift. That's what you do. Doesn't mean you're the most masculine. That doesn't mean you're manlier than a dancer. That's a male. The hyper-masculine thing, don't get caught into that because that's what you're being sold. You have to understand what the dynamics of being a man is, and it's not always the hyper-masculine thing. Let's dig around in that a little bit, but before we dig around in that whole area, which is a good place to sort of draw out some things, what you described earlier is a bit of a rite of passage, particularly for most black men that I know. Most of the black men that I know personally were raised in some type of church environment, probably Baptist or AME, but some kind of Protestant religion. I don't know a lot of black Catholic folks, one or two here and there. So to come up in that church system, I was raised Baptist in a Baptist church to come up in the Baptist church and to sit there every Sunday and to listen to those sermons that I listened to and am grateful for them because that was an introduction to God. It was also an introduction to a church and a denomination and a set of beliefs and a dogma and a doctrine and a way of life and a way of thinking within the four corners of that understanding of that religion. To break free from that, to step outside of that, to grow your consciousness beyond that, for most brothers, is a rite of passage. Like, that's a rite of passage to break from that. And many of us do not, David. We never break from that. We stay within, and I'm not judging it, I'm just saying we stay within the belief system that was handed to us by our parents. Or some family member. We stay there. So what you described was what we call a syncretic approach. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-C or syncretism. Drawing a little bit from this culture and spiritual tradition, a little bit from that one, studying this, because there's an underlying wisdom that binds and unites and that is an elixir and that is a, what's that word I'm looking for? Nectar of all the religions. If you get under all of them, there's a nectar there that is common wisdom. That's what I drink. If I had to put a name on any religion that I am involved in, it's wisdom. Because there's a wisdom in all of these traditions that is the nectar that I drink. And so I appreciate what you're saying. I have a very similar approach to my spirituality as well. I was raised Baptist, as I said, grew up in the Christian tradition, still consider myself Christian. I don't deny Christ, nor will I ever deny Christ. I fully believe that Christ consciousness is the highest level of consciousness to be reached when you study out what a Christ is. What a Christ Mm -hmm. is, what that consciousness is, is very high. I never deny that. I'm not married to the idea that Jesus Christ was a human being that walked the earth. I'm not married to that. All that history that we get of Jesus in the Christian church, I'm not married to that. He may have been. The Christ Mm -hmm. consciousness is real, even if he never touched down on earth as a human being. And if all of that mythology is not true about him as a historical person, that consciousness is real. Why? Because thoughts are things. Thoughts are things. So Mm -hmm. Jesus is real, whether he was a historical person or not. Because look at the thoughts that have gone into animating him as a spiritual figure. Think about that. Yes. That's a lot of thought. So that figure is real. Now, when you study out the other avatars that have come to earth, Buddha, Krishna, the list goes on and on and on. We can go back to Egypt and all of the deities that we know you mentioned Yoruba and all of the Orishas, all of these avatars that have come to earth and have come into our consciousness 
have formed our spiritual traditions. When you go to study them out, they're all very similar energies with similar functions. So for me, and I was taught this by one of the quote-unquote conscious brothers in the Black Power Movement, Brother Bobby Hemet, and I read the Bible like it's all happening to me, inside of me. So Moses, Joshua, all the, Isaiah, my favorite, all those brothers and sisters, like all those are energies and stories inside of me, all parts of me, all those Egyptian deities and all of them. It's all in me. That's how I read it. As you're talking about it, this is what I started to understand. When you're married to a thought and an idea, you cancel and leave people out. It's somehow the humanistic side leaves. Because see, what happens is, if you are married to being this, I have friends from all walk of life. One of my good friends is from India. And we can sit down and have a wonderful conversation, even about religion. I understand him, he understands me, and we learn from each other. You're never from a place where you know it all and you have arrived. You are always evolving. Even if you're in a point of your life and you feel stuck, you are still moving. You are still evolving. You don't always have to be going and things clicking and ticking. I've seen it where you don't have the same belief I do, so, oh, no, I cannot associate with you. And so what that started to do for me on a layer level, honestly, we want other people to accept us as minorities, but they do not because they don't understand us and they want to keep it oppressed. But yet instead we go out with that same hurt and we do it to other people because they don't believe in what our dogma or our religion is or what was taught to us. Then you are doing the same thing. You have become the opposite person now. In the evolution of this program in this space, when I think back to when I first started, 2010, I had a spiritual awakening in 2012 and that changed everything. So for those first two years, 2010, 2011, I can honestly say that where I was then as a Christian, a lot of my presentation was at the root of the presentation, my intention. And I think this is at the intention of a lot of Christian folks, because that's what the doctrine says. And this is what you are schooled consciously and even subconsciously to do. And that is to recruit others to your faith in your conversations and your discussions. You feel me? You're always trying to recruit. I was presenting so that you would believe this and accept it. And you would think and feel that way too. Recruitment is at the core of religion. That's what a, a Christian religion recruitment is at the core of it so that's why there's the disagreement i feel that you talked about earlier that people can't really fellowship if you will with non-believers because at their core they're trying to recruit you over to be a christian and once i awakened spiritually and literally it was like the top of my head opened in this very room that i'm sitting in right now and i just knew stuff I literally just knew there's a scripture. Where is that scripture? Because I like it. There's a scripture in the Geneva Bible. The Geneva version came out in the 1500s. The King James Bible came out in 1611. So when you read the Geneva version, the language is very different than in the King James version. In Proverbs 123, Proverbs 123 in the Geneva Bible says this, turn you. At my correction, lo, I will pour out my mind unto you and make you understand my words. Proverbs 123, I will pour out my mind unto you. If you connect that with Philippians 2, 5, which says, let the same mind be in you that was even in Christ Jesus. I will pour out my mind unto you. And that's what my spiritual awakening was like. It was like my mind opened up and I got the download of the millennium that day and for successive days. And so everything was different after that. The way I presented information, the way I wanted to present information, the things that I wanted to talk about was totally different. And that's when I lost this core belief 
or core tactic or core intention that is embedded in the Christian faith to recruit other people. I ain't trying to recruit nobody. I don't necessarily want you to believe what I believe. I don't even present information in a way trying to convince you to believe what I believe. I just tell stories as I get it from spirit and you can do with it whatever you want to do with it. I just share what has helped me and what I'm all about on my journey. That's beyond religion. So even though I consider myself Christian, I do not consider myself a member of the Christian church. I do not. Because I don't follow that doctrine and I don't follow that thinking and that way of being. And I don't do the things that somebody who belongs to that church does. But I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm a follower of the yeah. te- of the teachings. So all of this is about being clear on your own spiritual identity. And for many people, I don't think that's a rite of passage, too. So leaving organized religion is a rite of passage. It's also another rite of passage to come into an understanding, an evolved understanding of what your spiritual identity is and who you are spiritually. How do you respond to or react to the idea of your spiritual identity? How do you talk about your spiritual identity? I always tell people, don't put me in a box. People are married to groups, and I'm not. But I recognize what my gifts and talents are and my identity of what makes me and who I am. That's like an inner sauce for me, so I don't always give... You know, you have your secret ingredient. You don't always give it to people unless you're led to. My thing is to be inspirational, to inspire someone. I'm in a place of sharing, and the identity piece for me is not made up just off of King James, (laughs) because that's not um, all of my truth. And it's not me being insulting. My mom is Puerto Rican and Bayesian and Indian. It's so many things that come into your identity and your makeup as a person. And then when you start getting to other parts that other people hate to talk about, like astrology, all these different other things, it gives you kind of an understanding. But then you have to kind of navigate through that and figure out where you want to be. It's an individual thing. No pastor, no deacon, no teacher. People should guide and share, not browbeat and manipulate and fear you, scare tactic you to do anything. Because once you go into that, that becomes a series of emotions of abuse that you are going through mentally and emotionally. Because it's the battlefield of the mind. You're always sorting out what is right, what is wrong. And that's usually in your moral compass. You have to figure out self and what your principles and your moral compass is. And I feel like everything else comes together over time. I want to make sure we talk about something that we said we were going to talk about. You mentioned at one point in our Facebook messages back and forth that you wanted to, well, I asked you if you would be open to talk about your relationship specifically with your father. There's a series that we've been doing called Conscious Fatherhood. I think you even remarked on it. And I would love to add your experiences to that series. What has your relationship been like with your biological Father, what do you know about him? What is your relationship like with him now? What has it been? What would you have us know about your father? I would say my father is a good man, but I'm very truthful in secrets kill. I didn't know he was my father until later in life because whatever happened with him and my mom. And so that bond, he was in a delivery room with me when I was born. But over time, and I'm even named after him, after the time, we grew distant because I didn't know who he was. I was in a whole other country. And when I came back, it was kind of like, yep, this your dad. And, you know, that was a raw introduction. It wasn't the best way. And with him, I have learned, and I told him this the other day, I still don't know all of your story, mm-hmm. which leaves a blankness sometimes because he's not a confrontational person. But some of the things I've heard from his brother, I can 
kind of relate to. And so I know there's some other things that goes on, like hurts and other issues that he may not speak. But they, you know, things can get passed down from generation to generation. You're like, where they come from? But I can relate to them. My dad is the type, like, he's a show-up person. Like, he'll show up. The nurturing, the love, he's very distant in that. So through life, I had to figure out how to treat and love myself. um, Because it was not there on both sides for me, the parent, especially the dad side. Very in and out. He's not a consistent person. But the consistent person that was for me was my Debbie Allen, which was his brother. So he often says, you're more like your uncle than me. To some extent, yes, but no. There's a lot of things I see within my dad, I see within myself. Some things I have overcame and did not know where they came from until I became older. And the relationship, I think, being someone that is gay, I think whatever parent, they could, you know, I'm accepting to it. It shocks them for a while and it takes them some time. I think sometimes as black men, the vulnerability of talking about that is not there because we don't teach from a place of vulnerability with men. We teach more to be a brick house, not vulnerability. So we've talked about some things. He says he's okay. He just wants me to be happy. He's very supportive. He shows up to things that I have. But, you know, it's almost like in a hidden closet. There's something in the hidden closet. And that's when I always say secrets can kill. And when I say secrets, a secret doesn't have to be anything, like, huge. It can be just if you do not tell your story. Many people do not tell their story, and it goes to the grave with them. And it's left with the generations to come. Mm -hmm. And don't understand why the generations are burnt out. And generations don't know where to go. I am a person that just digs into information. And I'm very aware. My discernment is very aware. And I'm in a place of that. So... That's what it is a lot of times. We don't have a lot of good conversation. It's something with him and his childhood with closeness that is not always there because their mother died when they were young. And so I understand that. I understand the abandonment. Now I understand how abandonment came along in my life and how it shows up. And that's why when I have my students, I pour everything into them. I had to understand why I go so hard with them when I was in my 20s. And now in my mid-30s, I balance things out because that was operating from a place of desperation, of dehydration, for love and acceptance. So I had to find all that within self. That's what it is with him. And he comes to functions. He comes in and he comes out. He's that type of person. When we did live together, it was like living with a roommate, honestly. My dad's side of the family is never too up in your face. What you doing? We have a thing where we respect each other's space, even in small quarters. It's something about closeness, something about emotion, that when you start talking there, doing that surgery and doctoring that up, that's where it gets weird because that's when people close off and shut off. But I am a person. I push and prime that. And the reason why I do it, because I'm like, the healing has to be there. You know, we got to really talk about that thing. So it's more understanding because you can never understand legacy if you really don't speak truth about it. The bad, ugly, good, and indifferent. That's what it is. You don't speak on it, you can't get there. And that's why legacy, which can be tied to your wealth and other different things, get lost and people lose their past, lose the blueprint because people are not so willing to share. You mentioned that you were born in Germany. How did you come to be born in Germany? Was someone in the military? Were you on an Air Force base? I'll clarify. I was born in the States. But my mom, because of some friction between her and my dad, she got mad and moved to Germany with a man that was in the military and did not tell my father. So from months all the way until I was certain ages, now I would fly back and forth as a kid to kind of be connected with like some of the aunties and all of that 
but I don't really remember them because you're like three, four. That's how that kind of happened. Her transaction, because she made selfish decisions off of her emotions. You're young at that time, 18, 19, I guess. She had issues too, and you become the pawn. So instead of this man is in the delivery room with me and whatever issues y'all had, instead of working them out, she just married another man. She married a complete other man, which I thought was my father for years. And when we came from Germany to the States, it was like a culture shock. I was like, what in the world is going on? And then when she introduced me to my dad, if she didn't introduce me, my great-grandmother did. My mom kind of co-signed on it. I think, Robert, I was like 9, 10, or 11. That was very shell-shocking. We were riding bikes, and he was like, I know this is going to be so different for you, so you can call me Dad, you can call me David, you can kind of call me whatever you would like. We're riding on a bike. I had a bike. It was a 10-speed. <laughs> he had a bike, and I had a bike. And it was like, in my mind, I can tell you exactly what I felt at that time. I was like, what in the hell is this? This is a hot mess. And I was thinking like that. I felt crushed. I felt abandoned. I felt alone. Is this true? Am I getting pranked? Like, hold up. How did this all come to be? And for years, he had a theory with my mom. Like, he couldn't even be in the same room with her. Like, we would be at a dealership buying a car for me. He'd be like, yeah, your mom getting money. He would be like, gone. When she leaves, he leaves. And not until later where his brother told me the breakdown, because see, two parents weren't willing to tell me what happened, the truth. His brother told me, as the major, he had to tell me, so I gained a better understanding in the back of the makeup. I just looked at him as an absent father, as a person that did not show up. But once I started to figure out more in the life, the lineage, the family, some other things with families in the islands and some other things going on, now I said, okay, I got it. It took me a while, and it still does, to deal in a place of kind of like, you want to be close, but it's at his timing, and I have to let that happen. So what state were and you born in? And I can't base that of how I survived. What state was I born in? I was mm. actually born in Virginia. In Virginia, okay. But then we moved. She moved to New York, because she's Puerto Rican, came up to New York, and then we went to Germany. So your mom was 18 or 19 years old, and you were born in the state of Virginia, and your father was present in the delivery room. Let's just stay right there for a minute. They did have some relationship if he's in the delivery room with you at the time of your birth. Was he a teenager too? Was he 18, yes. 19, around the same age too? I think my dad was older because they were high school sweethearts from my understanding. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's lovely. So you were born to high school sweethearts. Your father was in the delivery room with you. A lot of brothers can't say that. I don't even think I can say that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my father was not. <laughs> he was probably ha- having a drink somewhere and somebody said, oh, you, by the way, you're a dad now. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, but I would imagine that he was not in the delivery room with my mother having the baby. So that's a beautiful thing. So at some point shortly thereafter, Absolutely. do you know what the state of their relationship was then? Were they boyfriend and girlfriend? What were they then when he's there watching his baby being born? And were you his first child? I am the first. And I think they were together, but I think through all of the up and down currencies, my dad is a person you can't make him do anything. He's like, he's really like resilient. If he ain't going to do it, he's not going to do it. I don't know all that transpired at that time. They were together. And then the rest of the story, I always say, you know, you can get it from third hand person, but I allow him to tell his story. I allow her to tell her story. But the parts that I did get, they were at peace with me. To me, it was both bad decision, individuals that still did not have a grip on life that were still dealing with past issues. And I think hindsight, it just got involved. And at the end, like most kids, you suffer from it because you're torn with a lot of different emotions. 
you're kind of left in the black. It's like being in a theater and it's all black and you are trying to figure out where to go and you have to count your steps in life because if you don't count them, you're going to fall off the stage and hit the floor and then you're on cement or on a chair. So I had to do that for a lot. I had to count steps. I had to be my own protector. I had to kind of like raise my own self because my great-grandmother had a fifth grade education, even though she was good at math, but there was a certain level that she can only give, and I understood that. What you need it comes from the parenting side of it, and a lot of that I had to kind of finagle on my own. And I was blessed to have other teachers that were like parents to me. So along my journey, and I want to say that, sometimes you can be born into a bloodline and your family is not always your family through blood. It's other people. I have God moms. I have wonderful godfathers. I have God brothers and sisters that are just like my family. While my original family, the bloodline, is being repaired. And I have learned to accept that and be okay with that. Because sometimes we want to see things for what they're not instead of for what they really are. Let's stay right there where we want to see things not really the way they are. Because, and I'm just curious about this. This is not a judgment. I'm just asking for clarity. Because how does it feel for you talking about being born in Virginia to your parents? Because initially you said you were born in Germany. So at what point did that become part of your story I was born in Germany as opposed to the reality is that you were born in Virginia and your father was in the delivery room with you so how did you come to tell your story in that way because in the beginning it was very muffled for my mom to tell me everything she wouldn't give me all the back date and so Sometimes when I'm talking, I always have to go back and clarify. I was raised in Germany. And sometimes I may not say where I was born, so people may say, oh, okay, you were just in Germany. Like, that's where you were born. And I have to do better with the detailing of it. Because in the beginning, when it was told to me, no one would want to tell me anything. (laughs) It was kind of like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about what's going on now. I think how it feels to know he was in the delivery room. We have a connection. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's weird. When my dad is sick, he had like a heart problem years ago. I knew something was wrong with him. And I called him. And I was like, Dad, what's going on? I was in college, coming home. And he told me. And I was like, okay, well, I'll be home for that weekend or whatever day it was so I can be there for your surgery. We have this interconnection sometimes that I don't always have to say a lot to him. But when I see him and when I hear him, I can tell what state he's in sometimes. Sometimes it can be assumption, but for the most part, it's not. Because there's something when that connection is there when you're in the delivery room. When he told me he was in the delivery room, because he had to tell me that part. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. He did not tell me. His brother told me. That's what gave me kind of like, oh, okay. So he's not trying to just be, I have this kid and I'm not trying to be there. He wanted to be a part. And then he started telling me some other things like, it was a lot dealing with your mom. I used to have to go through a lot just to see you. I'm kind of like the typical story. Like you, you go through a lot. And that's when my brother told me to do child support and they wouldn't let me see you. So once I started to understand some of that story, I guess throughout the years, some pieces broke off. Instead of just being like, oh, yeah, you gave some sperm and now it's like you act like you don't have kids. I guess what I hear you saying is that for a while, for a period in your life, you really didn't know the details surrounding the details of the circumstances in which you were born. You really didn't know a lot. You're getting different stories. And and just by what you've said, having a mother who was, in your words, heavily into drugs as someone who was heavily into drugs for a decade of my life. I understand that life is chaotic on some level if you're heavily into drugs. It just is. There's no pretty thing about that. It is. You're right. Mm-hmm. So that could explain why a lot of the details were not forthcoming or were cloudy or just I can understand that. How is it that you came to live with your great grandmother? And was that your father's grandmother or your mother's grandmother? My mother's grandmother. When we came from Germany, my mom's side 
because I was gone for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came in, it was kind of like the first grandchild, you know, that grandchild thing. And it's like, oh, this is mine. But my dad's side, there was a tug of war between the both great grandmothers. But my grandmother, my mom's side, was not having that. I was even kind of almost forced to make a decision who I wanted to stay with. And when you're young, you only go with what you know. I think what happened was when my mom got really out there in drugs, because it was a lot of abuse going on in Germany. I was a kid. I didn't know about it with her husband at that time. Just through some of the correlation in the letters that she was writing my dad, she came to the States. She was really, I guess, going through. And that's how I became in the custody of my great-grandmother. And I guess that's kind of what I remember. Mm-hmm in it. I don't remember actually like physical papers or going to court. It's kind of that thing. And I had to learn this on her side of the family. All the firstborn children were kind of given to someone else in the family to raise. That is a generational thing. And that's a black um, folks thing too. That's how we do. At that time, we didn't go through adoption. Yes. We just ended. Hey, you gonna go live with your uncle, mm-hmm. your uncle Pete? Hey, you gonna go over here and live with your aunt Sally? That's just how we did it. That's how we survived. Yep. That's how we survived. Mm-hmm. And and a lot, like I said, I did not start to learn a lot of this until mid-20s. Just sitting back, looking, coming to some of the, the events or functions, because I was always into dance. So that took me other places, but coming to the family functions, and it started to connect. Like, everything connects with the family, the love and the dysfunction pieces of it. Like, learning that. That's when I started to say, oh, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. And usually once I get it, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, got it. Now I understand. Right. I was at a place of just understanding. Like, what happened? Can you just tell me? Can you give me, a, even if you give me 30 seconds of a breakdown, right. just give me something so I can understand. So I'm not just out here with all these assumptions and all these feelings. And sometimes those feelings come about and then you start going into other dark places in your life, the depression and other things, because see, no one is talking. No one is sharing. No one is telling the truth. So you don't know as a kid. You just know you feel kind of empty and alone. And like I said, my thorn in my side was my dance. It became therapeutic. It was like my friend, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, know. I felt like I talked to dance more than I talked to people sometimes. <laughs> I get it. I heard Roberta Flack say this once. She said, there's something that saves all of us. And for me, it was music. So that's what dance was for you. That's what writing is for me. There's something and it's that gift. You know, God don't just set us down here with nothing you got some gifts to work with you know you got some natural divine stuff to some manna to shape and mold whatever your earthly experience is going to be and for you that was dancing thank god that you connected with that yeah look at all the people that you've seen i've seen we've seen who they know they got something in there but they just can't find it they can't identify it if they have identified it they can't get behind it they just can't seem to make the pieces of their gift shape it into something that they can live off of So I feel like we're blessed to have known early on, to have been shown early on what those gifts are and to have found somewhere within all of that pain and turmoil and chaos and confusion that both of us and many of us have experienced. We've took that and shaped it and molded and channeled it, if you will, into those gifts and created something, as you say, some beauty from those ashes. That's really, really, really important. And so many people don't ever really make that connection. You've mentioned depression a couple of times. I want to talk about that. But earlier on, you also talked about sexuality and you talked about how that shaped sort of your coming up. And I was thinking when you were talking, a lot of times, particularly when we're talking as teenagers, a lot of teenagers don't really know. I'm talking about black boys. 
is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. A lot of black boys don't even know what their sexuality is. And a lot of black boys looking at other black boys, talking about those other black boys' sexuality, don't really know what those other boys' sexuality is. What they're looking at, and you did mention this when you talked about hypermasculinity, what they're looking at is what appears to be effeminacy, an effeminate nature in a young black boy. He's soft. He's sweet. Mm-hmm. He doesn't move the way that we move. He doesn't respond the way that we respond to things. So a lot of times, and I've had to come to learn this about myself because my female side of myself, my feminine energies about myself mm-hmm. developed earlier outwardly before my masculine energies did. People identify us mm-hmm. as males because we got dicks. So everybody know that. I mean, they know you're a man because you look like a man or a boy and you got a dick. So you are expressing your gender in the world as yeah. a boy. But that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the development of the energies inside of you. So a lot of times those young boys were looking at me. They may have been looking at you and they see what they feel is softness emotion particularly if you got some gifts and talents on top of that that are creative in nature when you have athletic gifts that express themselves what is traditionally considered a male dominated industry sports at that time that's okay like people can roll with that because that's how we're socialized to believe but when you're 15 and you don't want to play football but you want to sing or you want to dance or you want to write you automatically are getting met with some energies that you're soft and what i didn't understand then that i get now is that my female side, my divine feminine energies were expressing themselves at an earlier point. It took me until I got into my 20s and 30s for the the more masculine aspects of myself which we would consider left brain activity began to express itself. And now at 54, I feel like I'm fully balanced. Like I understand both sides and I can draw upon both sides and I can keep them balanced in ways that create a life that I actually love. But at that time, I didn't know. So all of that to say that a lot of times we use the word sexuality, but that's not really what people, they assume because you they see you and you might be soft that you might be gay. That's what the assumption mm-hmm. is, but they don't really know. I know some guys who are soft who are not gay. Yes. So I think sexuality is a word that we're using as opposed to really, because it's hard to talk about for a lot of black men. And that is, I think even now I could be wrong about this, but even now I think it's easier to talk about being gay than it is to talk about being effeminate. That every man is not a macho, hard type of dude. We automatically connect that with sexuality when sometimes that connection does not have to be made. It's really that some of us are harder and some of us are softer. I like how you said that because that makes sense. What I have learned is, and just looking at it, in the dance world, I'll use this, you always find more girls than men. Now it's starting to change a little bit, but it's still, eh, but you're seeing it. And what happens is, I don't think coming up, it's always taught like you have a duality. There's a male energy and there's a feminine energy. Everyone possesses it. Even the females do. They have a male energy. And then you break it down sometimes when you start going into the personality of the alpha, the beta, the gamma, and the sigma type of person. And like you said, sometimes your feminine energies may come out or be developed more. And what I've seen a lot of times, even when I sit on some boards and I had to correct somebody recently, well, we want the girls to do dance and the boys to do drumming. And I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. They need to be exposed as well. Because what I started to see was, as they start to grow, you train them for where they're going, not where they're at. 
What happens is in relationships, sometimes it can be hetero, gay, it doesn't matter to me. The connection, when you hyper-masculate a man and you emasculate them and say, oh, you're too soft, you need to toughen up and you punch it on and you're hitting on them and you try to make them this tough person, you're building fear and anger. And what happens in fear, they don't want to talk about sexuality and what they're really going through or how they identify. And it's always this hyper-macho thing going on. And I used to have to tell people, I may look like I am feminine. But don't get it twisted on the flip side. And I used to go through that where it comes a time where you go through the bullying and I would have to kick some people's ass. Like I would have to show them like, no, this is not going down. And people were very surprised because, again, it's like, oh, he's soft. We can do what we want. We can say what we want. And I had to build like this Teflon around me, like this gate, like, yo, I'm going to have to like hurt you. Please, let's not do this. And I just think it's something that's taught. I have two godchildren. Well, I have three, but I have two boys. And I raised them to come talk to me about anything. I don't care what it is. And I was doing this when they were like six and seven. And it was important for me to get them to understand what you may see and present as a man is not always that. Because the inside of you, you still need to know how to love and relate to people. I have taught a lot of people, Robert, even couples, like wedding stuff and um, samba and salsa and the women always want their husbands to come dance with them and the men don't ever want to dance with them. They feel embarrassed. Oh, that's not manly enough. And I used to tell people, the couples, they're much older than me, like, but this talks about your communication. The dance can show you how to communicate because it will show you your yin and your yang. Your strength is her weakness and vice versa, however you want to say it. But it will bring you closer together when I used to do the couple stance, because you have to move and think it's one, and you have to lose all of your hyper-masculine or your alpha femaleism. You have to lose all of that, and you just have to learn how to gel and become one, because when you couple, there is a trust there. And so I even teach that when I teach men's class, when my guys and they come dance. They partner with different females, and I train them to be very strong, but I also train them to move light as a feather, but still strong as a bull, strong as an ox. When you leap, I need to see you go there. But I still need you to be able to tell that story and be very soft because when I look at it in hindsight of relationship, you are going to grow up to be a man who you marry, whatever. When you get in that relationship, it's a lot of times it's a very much disconnect where like, oh, I only want to do these things and I get caught in my own system and my ideology of what is masculine and what is not. And sometimes people lose, like they talk about divorce rates and all of that. Because the woman wants to go out and dance. She wants you to cruise with her. She wants you to go out. And men are like, no, I'm not doing that. Because, again, how you're brought up. I have to work, 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 and pay bills. That's what makes a man. And it's not true. That's like one element. That's not even the whole element of being a man. It's not. You lose a lot when you, again, when you're married to one thing, you lose a lot. What happens when you have a spiritual awakening or what happened to me when I had a spiritual awakening? was that I began to investigate and become aware of and study the science of myself. And that is not something that you are encouraged to do or that I was encouraged to do within the walls of the Christian church. And what do I mean by the science of myself? Exactly what we're talking about, that my brain is composed of two hemispheres, a left brain and a right brain. My right brain is what we would consider my feminine side, which is creative and imaginative and where my passion and emotions come from. And my left brain is what we would consider the masculine side. That's analytical and critical thinking. And it's about math. And it's all the stuff that we associate with a man. Well, both of those hemispheres are located in my brain, which means I have both. This is the science of myself. Yeah. And so the first marriage, the first spiritual marriage is 
a marriage of your two halves, your masculine and feminine, your lower nature and your higher nature. This is a marriage, a balance that has to happen within yourself first before you are even eligible to go out and find somebody else that you want to yoke yourself with. But we're not taught that. So we really don't know ourselves. Yeah. And I think you said something when you break it down, when you were talking about higher in your lower self, even when I teach my teachers, I talk to them about their chakras and the alignment, your sacrum versus your heart chakra, your throat chakra, your crown chakra. Knowing those elements or those chakras, if one is out of alignment, it throws you off and you become imbalanced. So balancing that masculine and feminine energy is very important, but it ties into the inner part of who you are, and it goes into your chakras, because even when you're talking about the lower self, where your passion and all of that is wrapped in that kundalini, all of that comes from that, and there are certain foods and exercises that go to that to help keep that furnace kind of going and rejuvenating. And the same thing about the crown chakra, a lot of light, a lot of life, a lot of different things, certain colors are associated with things. There are exercises and foods that help with each one of this, which also helped me come into vegetarian like veganism type deal because my body started to change over the years because I just couldn't process meats and stuff. Again, like you said, it's just not taught that way because a lot of those things are like, that's taboo or that's not spiritual. You're talking devil talk. Mm-hmm. In actuality, you're not. You are learning self because the more you can learn yourself then like you said when you go out here and yoke yourself with somebody you're not running through 30 and 40 girls but 30 and 40 men and having babies out the wazoo and leaving lots of legacy out there and spread it across the world that's because usually you're just not knowing self you just know what you see the product of that the product of the environment no one's telling the truth no one's telling those stories of really what's happening like you said the bible breaks down the stories within yourself like fables no one's telling you what's really going on so you just come up and you make assumptions and then you're just repeating the same curses not even knowing you are mm-hmm. you think you're doing something different on the road map and you're not you're actually following the same path mm-hmm. you mentioned several times the word depression And is that something Mm -hmm. that is common in the dance world that you have found, depression? I really don't say it's in the dance world. I think what I would say is it's in the world and it's just not talked about as much, which goes back to the mental health of people, Mm -hmm. especially in our community, because it's not talked about because secrets are kept and you don't want to make the family look bad. And whatever goes on in this house, it stays here. You don't take it out there. So you learn how to mask and layer it up and look pretty and you still empty walking around anger rage and you're depressive you you haven't that depressed you have depression i think what i see in the art when you do not know thy way or you are trying to figure things out i see a lot of kryptonites come in depression can be one drug alcohol sex can be one it can be a lot of different vehicles but what i see sometimes the undertone Depression is one thing that is not talked about. Being suicidal is not talked about. I struggled with that a lot in my early part of my life because it came from not knowing. Mom being on drugs, I had to fight some of her boyfriends. I'm like 9, 10 years old fighting grown men. Like, I have to be her protector. I have to be her parent. I have to take care of my great-grandmother. Then I had to take care of a sister that was born. It was a lot of things that were thrown my way. And so as I started to get older, your body and the brain can take so much before all the padlocks open up. I was in college and I had two mental breakdowns over the phone with my uncle. I just could not handle it. And I think it was just all the years of misinformation and not understanding. It just all hit me. I think I had a rough dance class that day. I had an older teacher. I just lost it. 
profusely. I would be like crying for like months. And at that time, I still had to show up and get into the gift. Like you said, I had to add some talent on that. The refine <laughs> repeat. Right, right. But I still had to push through, which didn't feel comfortable, you know, but I still had to get it done. And so it's just one of those things with the depression. I mean, I went through it heavily. And at that time, I was living with my dad. And they wanted to put me on some meds. And my dad was like, yeah, he's not doing that. And he was in my corner. You know, I said, oh, okay, he's in my corner. Even though we didn't understand each other, but he still understood. Like, yeah, my son doesn't need this. We need to find other outlets. And that's when I started to pick dance back up and just kind of live life. But I think dealing with the abandonment piece, you're still trying to wrap your mind about, like, how did I end up abandoned? The depression kind of creeps. It's like a slow creeping that just sneaks up on you and it's still in the back of the closet like hello i'm waiting i'm gonna come back out peekaboo kind of thing because you don't know how to deal with that when you're growing up you don't even know what it is you just know i feel sad that's what they teach you you feel sad you feel alone right but later it turns into other things i had a life coach for like five six years of my life sometimes i would be calling him every day and i would be talking to my uncle heavily so a lot of that i had to use different avenues to be therapeutic because what happened for me with dance was Dance was therapeutic for me when I didn't have to share it with anybody before show business came, right? But when show business came, it's like, oh, this is for other people. This is not also for you. So you have to share now. So I had to find another outlet, which became writing and which became working with kids with disabilities, like with autism and working with athletes on how to protect their body and different things like that. I had to find different avenues to have some therapy, but then I had to go real deep with my therapist and a life coach afterwards. And that took like five, six years, and it was heavy, but I had to do it because I always knew there was something better for me on the outside. Like, there's more to life than this. This is only temporary. There's more. And I used to say that. Even when my mom was on drugs, I'd be like, there's more than life than this. I remember looking up at the sky like, it's more than life to this, and your choice to do dance is going to take you up out of a lot of things. You have to dance your way out. That's the theory. But the application is I still had to do a lot of work like a lot of working, which was talking about it and going to seek things because, you know, counseling is definitely not a thing you want to seek in the African-American community. (laughs) You don't need a therapist, but you do because sometimes you just need that outlet. You need a non-biased approach or a person that does not even know you just to talk. Right. And talking about depression, you mentioned the word abandonment several times. To clarify Mm -hmm. that, are you talking about the fact that at some point your parents were not available to parent you and that's how you ended up living with your great-grandmother is that what you're talking about when you say abandonment absolutely the presence of them the in and out of my life nothing's consistent nothing's consecutive it's the presence you just feel alone you feel abandoned you just feel like hey Where are you? As a dancer, and I was related to this, I used to dance, and, you know, family and friends, well, friends would come to the shows, and all of my castmates, I call them all the dancers, their moms and dads would be there. I didn't have that. So it was like, oh, my gosh, you are really walking this thing kind of alone. And it grew with me for some time. It was like that thorn in my side. But it actually helped me become a better person. It helped me to really weather through some things. It actually helped me become a person like when I meet someone that is a student or anyone, I can give them empathy. I don't look at it like it's something, oh, I can't talk about. No, I can share it because it can help someone else. You glean and take from it what you will. You're living with your great-grandmother. At what point did your 
mother or father come back into your life and assume a parental role? Did you go until you were 18 with your great grandmother and then you're out on your own? Or when you were 13 or 14, did your mom come back into your life as a main parent and guardian? And My great grandmother died when I was turning 12. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was staying with my dad because, you know, as you grow up as a man, like a young boy, you're smelling yourself. So she was like, yeah, you got to come get him because he is like two live crew out here. So I was staying with him. She had called me to come visit her, but I didn't come. She had a stroke that night. She was in rehab. And because no one can come see her at the time, then she passed. My dad assumed that position by then. And I was staying with him. But because we had no relationship, it was just very awkward, Mm -hmm. like, Complete silence. I could be talking to the bricks better than I could talk to my dad. And that was, we were like roommates, literally. But from the time she died until probably the end of that year, because she died like sometime in May or something. Or no, she died early on. I was like November, December. I stayed where she lived at for six months by myself. So I was raising myself and still going to school. The school didn't even know she had passed. No one knew except like a cousin that was like my age. Because I didn't know how to move on in life. It was just like, oh, wow. It was an anchor that was taken away. So I still had to go to school and do all these things, cook my own meals, because I was already independent. I was doing that at seven, eight and stuff, cooking and all that. So I was cooking and doing all that. And then when I started to live with my dad, then I lived with a cousin. Because me and him was just not seeing eye to eye. I went to stay with a cousin on my mom's side. My mom did not come back in my life. And when she got herself together, I was like 16. But mentally, I was already another age. So we had a similar clash because she's looking at it from like, oh, when I left my baby. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm like 16. So it's, it's a difference now. And she stayed pretty active in my life all the way through like college. But the relationship, because it was never built like that right it was still like a hit and miss and a lot of that became on my part going through the forgiveness piece because i didn't have clarity i didn't have an understanding so it's like well how am i forgiving something i really don't understand and i was mad with her for a while and she would try but it was like oh i don't know if i can let you in because you might hurt me again and leave me and i'm abandoned again so you know i didn't want to take that leap of faith sort of with her mm-hmm. at that time. She had remarried, got herself together, and I always gave her kudos on that. The mothering piece was very different. She didn't even know what my favorite color was, so it was kind of like she felt a certain type of way because other women, like my godparents, they knew me more than she did, or people that lived in Tennessee knew me much better than what my mom knew. And that put a damper for her. Now it's a different modality. She's at functions, we hang out, but we're still building. It's slow feel so building Um, Mm -hmm. because one thing I used to tell her I don't understand the drug addiction but I can speak from a child that had a parent that went through the drug addiction and the aftermath the effects of it I can speak from that so I've always extended that grace to her like I had to chop it up to like you had this sickness this is what you were dealing with and she kind of opened up there was things I wasn't dealing with in my past and I just got caught up and she told what her story was and once I understood the story and not to be funny she told this story this Thanksgiving we had a healing session with me, her, and my sister this Thanksgiving, like this past, because mm-hmm. some things came out. And once I started to understand her story, the similarities between her and my sister, definitely. But then I came in on a different end, and I started to understand, oh, got it. Right. But it was once she was ready to commit to tell me the full-on truth. Mm-hmm. Because other than that, I will only have what people told me in assumptions. I think throughout my life, even as we're talking, it gives me a time to go back in time, Robert, of 
my whole life has really been about sharing. When you're in entertainment, you're sharing because it's a ministry. It's a healing for me. Someone in the audience, they can see something and we have a Q&A and I can explain what the pieces are about and they walk away changed. I've seen that happen. That People have emailed me or told me certain things and I'm like, wow, I'm on the right path. I'm doing the right thing of what it's intended to do, what the gift is. I'm not allowing someone to pimp the gift, use the gift, and not know what the gift is supposed to do. I've added that talent portion. I've added the balance. So now I'm able to go in and texturize it and season it up the way that I need to. Even with my parents, talking to them, my dad would read articles like, oh my gosh, like you're doing this? The company is here, but he entrusted me to his brother because we're both artists. But I had to tell him, no, but you're my father. There's a difference. This is an uncle that has no children. You're the father. So you still got to have fellowship and relationship so we can have an understanding of one another. It's interesting to me and intriguing the little piece of information that you just put into the conversation about. I like how you say he entrusted me to his brother who has no children. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes as we get more spiritually mature, we begin to perceive things outside of tradition. So in actuality, or one possibility is more accurate, is that your uncle did have children. He had a son that was you because that's like a second father. He was assigned to you in a parental role in some aspects of your life. You mentioned that you had two, I think you used the phrase mental breakdowns, and one of them was over the phone with your uncle. Do you find that your uncle has been there for you when your father, his brother, has not been there for you? Absolutely. So remember I said it's kind of like the bloodline, like you're born into a bloodline, but you have other people, and I have godparents and stuff. But with my uncle, most people, when they see us together, they're like, oh, you act just like him. Yeah, I didn't think it was your uncle. And he'll say, no, this is my brother's son. But he's been there. And actually, both mental breakdowns were over the phone with him. He was there because once he started to figure out I wanted to dance, like I said, we just happened to talk about it. One day when I was like 18, he's like, yeah, what are you going to college for? I'm like, oh, yeah, dance. And he's like, what? It was so weird because he didn't know. Uh, We just never talked about it. We used to talk about other therapeutic things. And he was there. Even when I was a kid, and let me go back to clarify, even when I was a kid, I remember the first time I met him, we had just came from Germany, and I think I was like two years in being here. He would come from Europe or New York to come visit me. I sat on his lap and he would talk to me and I think that's where our initial connection came from because he's always been a part of my life. Even if he was guiding my father to deal with situations with my mom, he was always on the backside. So when I say he was entrusting, it's like I am his child. The Mm -hmm. same thing with my great-grandmother. They were my guardians, but they were my protectors. Mm -hmm. And most people don't have that in their life. I'm very fortunate where I do have that. And of course, along the way, you bump heads. It's natural, but it's like I wouldn't trade it for the world because not only is he my uncle, but we work in the same field. I get him, he gets me, and as we always are evolving, that's one thing he used to tell me, like, you're always going to evolve, and you're going to have to learn how to accept people where they are sometimes and draw your boundaries and your conclusions from how you want to. When His favorite phrase, and I used to hate it, he used to say, if I came to him with an issue, he would be like, well, if the world throws you sour lemons, you need to make a fresh glass of lemonade. I mean, he said this so much that it had got to the point I was 
problem solving my own problems, but that was his point. You have to solve your own problems. I'm there, but I don't want you to be so codependent. And then he goes into dad mode sometimes where it's like he's super protective. When I was sick, not with COVID, but I was sick, something happened where like my nose was bleeding or something and he wanted to make sure I was okay. Make sure you're eating this. He's always introduced me to certain things and just try to keep me on the positive path and so yeah, I would say I am his child. And he says that, his friend says that, you know, and we laugh about it and talk about it. So yeah. Yeah, that's really important. A lot of times we don't think about as someone who does not have biological children and who does have a nephew. I have one nephew. My sister does not have biological children. And we are the only two children from my mother and father. So my mother and father do not have grandchildren from us. My father has an older child, my brother Robert, from another woman when he was in the Air Force before he married my mother. My older brother, Robert, has a son, Noah, who is my nephew. So I am an uncle. And a lot of times I find in my work now and even um, in my TV work, I'm always putting in things into the script, into the program, into the presentation about uncles. Because I don't think we talk enough about uncles. And, you know, we always hear about particularly black folks. We always hear about the auntie, auntie this, auntie that. So we kind of know what the auntie does. But I don't think the uncles get enough attention. We certainly saw this in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That was Will Smith being raised by his uncle who took on the father role. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a really important representation for us to see. We don't talk enough about uncles. So I appreciate this whole storyline that you've given today of your uncle and the role that he's had in your life and that he's had in your profession and that he's had in your development as a man. He has shepherded you through some things. And I give respect yes. to that brother. <laughs> yes, I give respect to him for that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to touch on in our time together today? When you first did the post about the series, I was like, oh, wow. Because I'm a very private person. People don't even know when I'm dating. Because so, friends are like, do you date? And I'm like, yeah, but you just don't know because I'm not posting everything on social media like that. So when I first came across, I was like, hmm. I looked at it. I read it. That's oh, Robert's doing some great things. And I went to do something else and I came back to it and I said, well, I'm at a place where it's like I have to be able to tell it so I can go deeper in the healing in another chapter and another layer because the other workings that I'm doing, because people know me by dance, but I also write in other things. I'm an entrepreneur. So through me being able to tell this, honestly, it's brought some peace. It's brought some clarity. It's brought some parts that are kind of fudge when I am telling the story to make sure it's a lot of clarity is definitely making room for new blessings and opportunities and moving some of the old energy out. I did a recording recently on some spoken word that I've been writing for six years and I've held it. I have eight projects. I've just been holding on to it and I finally recorded it and I had to make room for something new to come in my life. Because I was just holding. And sometimes it's like when you're holding, you're like, nothing can come out and nothing can go in. Like things are coming in, but something's happening weird with the energy. So when I started to record it all and put it all out there and tell it, talk about relationship stuff, it just really opened me up to now I'm like, oh, it's the same thing with this. Now is the time to tell it. I mean, once you tell it, you have to let it go, but use it as a tool to really help somebody else. Because if you don't share, then there's another young 
black kid out there that is feeling the same thing, but if they don't have a reference point. Because I remember that being in dance. I didn't see a lot of black dancers. You saw a lot of white dancers beyond Debbie Allen, right? right? Right. And Alvin Ailey. So there was not a lot of reference points. So it's like you got to be a reference sometimes for people. And that comes through your own life and milestones. I thank you for the opportunity. You're quite welcome. I'm grateful to open up and talk to you as well. It's been a long time coming because, like I said, our first contact goes back some ways, <laughs> some ways. And so it's good to be able to talk spiritually. I'm called to be an earth angel to people. And I think that's the broadest mission that I have to be an earth angel. And I've lived long enough to see myself in that role and to understand. Remember how we talked about at the beginning, how I had all these pictures of Diana Ross on my wall. And it dawned on me Mm -hmm. that at 15, really what I had was an infatuation with an image, with the songs. I was infatuated by all that. As a 54 year old man, I'm no longer infatuated with Diana Ross. I realized that I don't even really know Diana Ross. (laughs) Still love her, still listen to her music, still appreciate the gifts and the talents that she has. And at the same time, I realized that I don't even know the woman who created all of that. You know, we both work in show business. We know how to create an image and the best of us. I'm trying to think in my mind if I know anybody before I say this, but the best of us know how to create an image that is authentic. That is really who we are. Yeah, that is really who we are so that when you see the image and are captivated by that, when you meet the person, you get the exact same thing. Maybe the lighting ain't as good. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some pimples on their face where you didn't see them in the picture because of the beauty of edge brushing <laughs> and Photoshop. But basically, the <laughs> essence and the spirit of what you're getting is the same thing. I endeavor to be one of those people. So that what you get is as real as what you think you saw whenever you may have heard me say something. So I guess I want to leave our conversation today that I'm asking you what you want to leave with, with an understanding of has this time together in real time for the first time been anything what you thought it would have been based upon whatever you were thinking about me over these last nine years that we've known each other online? Mm, I would say yes. In a, a little bit of no, I've always thought there was like some mystery there, right? Because I remember inviting you to stuff and he was like, oh, one day it's going to happen. And I think meeting up in just real time and conversation, I think it's still the same way you present, even in messages, even in your postings. It's the same. Yeah, I would say yeah. I'm always curious about that. What are you walking away from this conversation with two things? What would you like to leave the listener with? As you walk away from the conversation and what are you walking away with from our time together today? I would tell a listener, share your story, clear the room, clear the clutter and make room for newness. Be the best creator that you can be, be the best creative person that's on the inside that can be. But you have to make room and be able to share your story and always share and evolve. For me, it's just like a... I'm not even going to say a weight lifted, but I just feel lighter. I feel like peace and I feel just like lighter. So for me, it's like, I feel like in this part of my life, I have been able to put the story out and I've been able to talk about it and share it, not hide from it, not be embarrassed about it and talk about the struggles and the inner working, like the under the hood type of stuff that you don't get, like you said, because we're in entertainment, you know how to put it on. 
but really just talk about some of the things and just have a good conversation for people to hear. So for me, it's just, I just feel lighter. I actually have a smile. It's a smile of like completion, like, okay, great. I mean, you still have to always do the work, but I feel like it's another chapter coming in. Mm -hmm. And I have cleared some of the clutter from years of holding things, just making room to see what's to come and brighter stuff. And stuff has already been changing for me and coming as I am committed to clearing space on this journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what would you like to talk about the next time we get together? And what would you like to have accomplished or become by the next time we sit down and talk about your journey? Wow, that was a lot. I'm big on pursuing what you want to do in life. There is a pathway people carve for you, and there, there's a divine pathway mm -hmm. um, that is meant for you. And I love to talk about that, especially with youth, because we talk about a lot with masculine and feminine, and mm -hmm. we do that with gifts and talents. I want my child to go into being a doctor or being a nurse or being an RN, but no one sits down and really looks at the child and pray and whatever your belief system is and say, what does this child have to offer to the world? And mm -hmm. let me cultivate that in them. And that's what my uncle did for me. Allow me to be who I'm going to be, good, bad, ugly, and indifferent, and support. And if it was like, look, I need you to get your mm -mm together now. This is what it is. But facilitate that. Like, facilitate what you really want to do because we're pushing people in a, a realm now where it's a carbon copy. And I'm very fortunate that I can wake up. When I decided to leave city government almost 12 years ago, that I can wake up and get paid to do what I love to do. And in that, I have created another business that I have started, that I have been, again, sitting on these writings and some other things for six years. Now that I am clearing space and being committed to sharing, it evolved to me, okay, no longer you can sit. You have to do these things. So it will probably be talking to people about pursuing what really makes you happy in your, whether it's your career, your life, instead of what is someone carved for you, do what your divine order is. Find what that is. The gift will make the room for you as long as you're doing the work. The law of attraction of money, wealth, whatever you want, it's going to come to you. Love, it's going to come, but it's a way that you have to follow that format. So that's what I would say on that. That's a good word that you left right there. That's a good word right there. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, see, we missed that whole thing about the path cut out for you by the world and then your divine path. We missed that as black people from the many of us mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Yeah. When we give a name to a child, because in many African societies, that name is their life path. It's their sole purpose. Like it's embedded in the name. And we miss that piece sometimes. That's why if you look at a lot of the great prophets, they go through a spiritual renaming when they come into consciousness mm -hmm. and come into purpose because that name, that spiritual name speaks to their holy purpose of why they're here. Whereas their given name didn't do that necessarily. That's why Saul became Paul, because there was a reason for that. Absolutely. Okay, that's why Jacob became Israel, because there's a purpose in that name, Israel. So I think that that's a mm -hmm. good word that you gave right there, because there is a divine path. And sometimes your name on that path is different than the name you started out with. And that don't mean you got to change your name. You can. We've certainly seen that. There is a, mm -hmm. this is what I love about studying spiritual things too, because and this is where it gets really spooky for some folks out there and you know who you are. <laughs> you know who you are. Because there are invisible things, things that we can't see just like you don't see the air that you breathe. 
but you know it's there Mm -hmm. and you're breathing it right now. You don't see the wind, but you know it's there because you feel it on your face. There are invisible things. Some of us would even call those spiritual things. And those spiritual things, in my frame of view, govern the material things that we do see. So in other words, it's the invisible that's controlling and creating the visible, not the other way around. The things that you Absolutely. see, okay? The things that you see are not creating the things that you don't see. It's the things that you don't mm-hmm. see that are creating the things that you do see. That's what the study of spirituality is all about. It's the study of unseen things. You can even see that in the Bible. There mm-hmm. was a certain message that Jesus gave to the people because the mass consciousness can only receive but so much. And that's the good part about religion. Religion serves a very good purpose for mass consciousness because you need as a human being on this planet to be introduced to some form that is higher than yourself. Absolutely. And religion does that. It's going to give you somebody. It's going to give you Allah. It's going to give you Jesus. It's going to give you Buddha. It's going to give you Krishna. It's going to give you somebody that's higher than yourself. That's a good thing. There was also a teaching for those that we would call the elect or the adepts, the masters, the disciples got another teaching. So that's around the fireside when Jesus is talking to the 12. That's a different message. And even in that Mm -hmm. message, sometimes he spoke in parables because all of them couldn't even receive it or wouldn't understand what you hear me or or wouldn't even understand what they received. Okay, so even then he would tell a parable. So you got to want to dig in and go after the knowledge of higher things. You got to dig in for it. It isn't going to drop in your lap. What's going to drop in your lap is what the mass consciousness can receive. We all going to get that. Yeah. That's what everybody's doing. That's for everybody. You have to tap into, like you said, the invisible, the unknown. My grandmother used to say, the snake on your right, you can see. You know what it's going to be about. The snake on the left, you have to chop it off at the head because you can't see it because it's going to approach you in a different way from behind. It's one of those things. It's very true what you said. I always name three games. The Matrix is the Matrix. It's going to function one way or the other. It's like the game of chess. It's very strategic. It's like a game of Monopoly where it can incarcerate you or you can choose to pass it by and be free and be ahead of the game. And it can be a game of spades. It can cut you. Because it is just one of those things. Those games, for us, we play them like, oh, it's entertainment. But when you look at the history and the backing of the strategicness of chess, it's a lot of how things are run. It's the science behind it all. Yes. And again, it depends on how deep you want to go into why space was created, who created it. The same thing with Chad Monopoly. In our families, it was, yeah, maybe we want to teach you how to count money. But when you start looking at that, you're talking about Park Avenue and all these other things. You're actually talking about real estate and owning. It's actually a business. It's actually something of residual income. And actually, it's kind of your blueprint. If you want to gain wealth or knowledge or whatever, it actually opens you up to financial literacy. It really does, which lacks in our community a lot. Spades is also opening you up in another way. You have to be able to see what's at hand and play right then and there off of what you're seeing. Sometimes that does happen, and then you have to guess and estimate from the unknown. Again, everything is a deeper meaning, and it depends on how deep you want to go, or do you want to stay surface and basic? And that means you get the results that you get. You get what the mass is really doing. It depends on how deep you want to go into it. Or do you want to just get blindsided every time you see something and you're over hyperventilating when 
things happen in the world. We survive a lot much more things in life. Our ancestors are telling us a lot of things even now. But are you going to tune into that or are you going to be like, oh my gosh, this is like taboo. It's dark. It's a reason for everything. Absolutely. There's a reason for everything. And I would like to leave the listeners with and encourage the listeners in the direction of exactly what we're talking about. And that is that you have to go after spiritual things. What will automatically come to you is the mass consciousness, the level of information that is discernible by every human being. That's what's going to come to you. That's what programming is. The information that takes more spiritual development to discern that level of information. You have to go after that. That's what you're asking for when it says ask in the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, and you will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. That's what it's talking about. Another level of information and wisdom and understanding. That's not just going to come to you. Because the deeper stuff tends to come in the package of something simple that you can understand. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, what's going to come to you is, if you put your finger on that stove, a hot stove is going to burn. That's going to come to you. You're going to learn that pretty quick. Within that hot hurts, stay away from it. Within that information that comes to you, what you have to go after is the polarity or duality that you talked about earlier of what is cold and what is hot. They're really two ends of the same thing, and that's energy. See, that ain't going to come to you. Mm-hmm. You might get a little bit of that in science. Yeah, some things will come to you. But the deeper meanings are things that you have to go after and seek for yourself. And so the deeper you go, the more spiritual wisdom you get, the wiser you become. And then, Absolutely. yeah, and then you get introduced to your spiritual identity. That wisdom then opens up a level of awareness to who you are spiritually. And I find that those of us who are creative and particularly talented, many times, particularly black boys that we've talked about, we get so involved. I own it for myself. I got so wrapped up into my talent and what I could do and the gifts that I had that that became all of my life. That's what I talked about. If you were in a conversation with me for 10 minutes, nine minutes, I was talking about my career and what I do and me, 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 yeah. and this, 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 and I'm so this and I'm that. And I'd list all my titles and what I did. I mean, that was my whole conversation. I would bore myself shitless if I had to talk about myself like that these days. But that's what we do because that's what we're proud of. And that's yeah. the area that we have found to love ourselves in that loves us mm-hmm. back. And the world can see that. So that's what we talk about. Absolutely. There are other things Absolutely. that we ain't talking about because <laughs> we ain't figured it out. It fucking hurts. We were still dealing yep. with it. It's painful. So we ain't talking about that. But we will fill up the room with all the bright, shiny things about our lives. That's what we do. And that's the yep. phase that we go through. And that's the phase that I went through. Absolutely. And then you move into a deeper <laughs> level of yourself and you realize that, hey, there are other things to talk about that don't concern me, that I am not the center of. And they are valid conversations to have. And you become engaged in things outside of yourself, which is all a reflection of yourself. But you're not filling up every opportunity with yourself, is what I'm trying to say. So we all move through phases in life. And what I love about being 54 that I did not anticipate and did not expect. And this is a confession. I love that I no longer have to be the center of attention. I love it. Because for many years in my mind, I had to be the center of attention. And I was seeking a career that would put me 
at the center of attention. And I needed that. I needed the adoration and the affirmation and the applause of the people at my accomplishments. I needed all of that. The awards that came with it. Like I needed it. I wanted to be a star. That's what I wanted. And the more I began to love myself, my desire now is I don't seek fame. I love that we're going to end on fame because we started talking about fame. So this feels real good where we are right now. I don't (laughs) seek fame. I do not. Fame would bring a level of attention that I do not desire. I don't seek fame. Mm -hmm. I seek relevance and I seek to be successful, which I have been and am in the giving of my gifts. And I seek to maximize the potential that my gifts offer me. And this is why God gave me a career in producing and not as a performer. You're a performer. I just want to outline some distinctions for us and for the people. Yes. You live a performer's life. So when that spotlight Mm -hmm. shines, it's shining on you. That's what Mm -hmm. a performer does. They take the attention. They get it and they give. Give and take all at once that the audience sees. They're watching you give this and they're giving you their love and admiration and affection right back. That's a relationship. That's the life of a performer. Mm -hmm. I live the life of a producer. So I can't apply this to the dance world because I don't work in that world, but I can apply it to the television world. So what you see as the viewer is the bright and shiny thing. In my world, that will be called the talent. That is the person who's standing Mm -hmm. there saying the things that you love to hear in the room that you think is beautiful on the show that you love to watch as a producer mm-hmm. i'm the one that's telling that talent what to say i'm the one that put that performer in that room it's my ideas you're hearing through that performer's mouth that is the life of a producer so the performer can't go to the atm machine because everybody knows who that performer is but i can because nobody knows who yeah. I am. live similarly have just as much if not more money than the person that you see but nobody Mm -hmm. knows my name not nobody you know the people in the industry you know people in your industry are always going to know who you are (laughs) but you know what i'm talking about mass consciousness is what we're talking about don't nobody know that they have no idea that those are my ideas they think the ideas are coming from the bright shiny thing that's what we're all attracted to the bright shiny (laughs) thing but those are my ideas you're listening to that's what a producer does so now i understand why god gifted me with this life and not the life of a performer Mm. I'm not called to be a performer like that. That's not my gift or my talent. I'm the guy Mm -hmm. that the performer calls in the midnight hour. Mm -hmm. That's true. Come on now. I'm teaching good here now. I'm the guy that the performer calls in the middle of the night when everything (laughs) is falling apart in their life. They call me. Mm -hmm. I'm that guy that you'll never know about. They will go on TV the next day and say they had a breakdown the night before and still never mention my name, that I'm the one that they called in the middle of the night. So you still won't know. You'll just know that this performer had a breakdown and recovered from it, but you'll never know how. And so I've accepted that. This is really important. I don't know how this is being heard by the listeners. It's important for me to say in this moment, this is how you know who you are and who you're not. I love that song that Patti LaBelle sang back in the day. Come what may. And I'll never be afraid Mm -hmm. of who I am and who I'm not. Come what may. And that's hanging up a lot of brothers and sisters because they don't know who they are and who they're not. They're trying to be who they're not and can't accept who they are. It's really important. And there's a level of peace that will come to you, brothers and sisters, when you know who you are and who you're not. That is not a box. It's not a box when I say I live a 
producer's life and not a performer's life. That's not a box that I'm in that I'm being confined to. The truth is that whatever you want to be, you can be with all the things we talked about. Gifts, talents, discipline. You can be whatever you want. But once you've decided what you want to be, the universe, God, and all the angels and ancestors and all the hierarchies and invisible forces and animal guides and whatever else is out there for you to assist you, it all comes together in a divine alignment so that you will be what you say and what you think you want to be. That's just what it is. So that's what I want to leave the listeners with. Dig deeper. Because what you're always going to find in the next layer of your digging deep is another version of yourself. As long as you're here. Absolutely. Come on now. As long as you're here, there's a deeper version of yourself to be found. Keep digging. Keep digging. Absolutely. Keep digging. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.